Julie Watson is a reporter with the Associated Press and was at the airport in Honduras to document the reunion. In her husband's arm and uh, in her hand, she had held tightly a little plastic jaguar that I guess had been his favorite toy. They kept analyzing every face of every child who would come out of the gate. Okay, so this is my mom, Julie Watson. Um, can you tell us uh, what you do for uh, a living? I'm a reporter for the Associated Press. Okay, so with that being said, my first question is, what is it like being a reporter at this time with the president trying to push people to not trust you and the rest of the media? It's challenging. Um, yeah, we're often... Uh, met with a lot of hostility, especially if it's someone who thinks that the media is liberal and has a liberal bias, then I now find myself um, having to calm people down more. And um, in some ways, it's been good because we no longer just do a he said, she said, we now uh, run fact checks and we call things out as they are. Okay, um, I wanted to say, what is it like being a reporter writing about immigrants such as the Karen? Um, yeah, so it's very challenging because, um, the caravan in particular logistically it was difficult to cover just because it was moving and so I covered it from Chiapas through Oaxaca so that was tough we had to get up at 2 in the morning because the caravan would be leaving at 3 a.m. and then we would get to the next town and then there would be nowhere to sleep no hotels um, and at the same time, we had to be working, and it was a little bit overwhelming because it's thousands and thousands of people and thousands and thousands of stories. So it was hard to figure out which stories we wanted to focus on because um, they all are very important stories from domestic violence victims to people escaping poverty to um, political persecution. Um, what kind of response did you get from people who read your stories? Um, I got mostly positive response. I do always get some hate mail almost every day that I write about immigration. Okay. Yeah, that was my second question. Uh, do you ever get hate comments from strangers? Yeah, even yesterday I got some. I got an email and then actually the email went into my text message. So it kind of freaked me out, but it was actually just from the email. But yeah, I get a lot of... Um, Depending, but immigration seems to bring out both sides. So I get both people applauding stories and people um, going off on me because they don't agree with, I don't know, whatever in my in my story. Sometimes I don't always understand it. I got in hate mail yesterday because I reported that the Tijuana mayor said that the migrant caravan is a humanitarian crisis. And someone wrote me in hate mail saying I'm biased and why don't I just call them all criminals and I don't know. So, yeah, you have to have a thick skin. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be affecting you, though, and I, I'm, like, very inspired by that, that it doesn't, like, change your mood or anything. It's just like, okay, whatever. I don't care about what you have to say. And, like, I don't know. Um, well, I care. I mean, I take it into account, but if it's someone who's just attacking and yeah. doesn't have a valid point, then 
Um, I try to tell myself that what I'm doing is important and I keep myself in check and think, am I telling the story truthfully? Is it really what I see? And if it meets all that criteria, then um, I just have to live with the fact that people don't want to always hear the truth. And if I've made a mistake, then I correct my mistake. I always fix all my errors. Um, so, yeah, uh, staying with that topic and stuff, uh, what kind of, like, types of uh, topics in your stories are, like, the ones you get the most hate on? Immigration. Okay. I know that you were able to go to Chiapas to see the caravan. What was the hardest thing about doing this story? Um, a bit what I said, just um, even keeping up with the caravan. So we, I flew into Mexico City, then I had to drive um, with some other reporters and a cameraman and a photographer, and we drove. It ended up taking us 20 hours. And then we got in, and we slept for two and a half hours, and we got up, and then we went and met the caravan, and then we traveled with the caravan until the next town. And then we worked all day, and then we got up the next, and then went to bed at, say, 11, and we were up again at 2 in the morning following the caravan, and so that was hard. And then we get to towns, like you said, and there were no hotel rooms. We went to one town that was 7,500 people, and we were 4,000 people coming into the town, so there was no food. So I got Gerardia, so that wasn't fun. (laughs) Um, I know that you uh, stayed with, like, a specific family and, like, you kind of just followed them around their, like, story and stuff. Um, So can you describe the family you interviewed and what you learned from them? Yeah, so my assignment was kind of find something, even though we had daily reports on the caravan, is to find something different, than something that would be more in-depth. So I decided to follow one family on one day in the caravan. So... The night before, I tried to find which family I was going to meet in the morning to be able to follow them. And I picked out several. And then I decided in the end on these two women, actually single moms. But then when we went to go meet them at 2.30 in the morning, they changed their mind. And they actually didn't think they were going to continue with the caravan. And they were kind of arguing. And so the whole thing fell apart. So I was starting to panic because I had limited time. So I didn't know what to do and I my gut was telling me which is important as a reporter you have to follow your gut my gut was telling me okay this is time to you know end following these women and pick another family because it wasn't going to work so I saw these couple with a stroller and a baby in the stroller and then two other kids and they were just standing in the dark kind of dazed because everybody was grabbing rides on trucks and buses and they um, were just kind of seemed to be dumbfounded about what to do so I went up to them and immediately I felt like we had a connection and they were very nice and they said sure that we could follow them and they said they'd be walking which worked for the story because I wanted to kind of show all the different ways of people walking and hitchhiking and a family and how difficult it is and so um, yeah I followed them I walked with them for almost six hours and then um, actually after walking with him for six hours we had a driver that uh, was following along with us and so I decided to take the the family stopped at the side of the highway to take a break and I decided to take a nap in the back of our car of the driver for five minutes I woke up and uh, I told the cameraman and the photographer to not lose the family but of course, when I woke up, they were gone, oh. and so we were panicked, and so, because our whole morning had been shot if we lost this family, and so 
the cameraman managed just as the family happened to be getting on the back of a truck they managed to get the driver the license plate so we raced we jumped in our car and we raced down the highway and found the the license plate and they were in the back of a huge cargo truck with about a hundred people in the back and so they stopped the cargo truck truck stopped at a uh, speed bump and the photographer that I was with jumped out and jumped into the back of the cargo uh-huh. truck and so he was with them and a hundred other migrants and so we didn't lose them we knew okay our photographer is with them so they mm. we continued to follow them to the next town and and then we were able to stay with them all the way until they went to bed that night so I got my complete story because my story I was framing because that's important when you're writing a story is how to frame it and how to think about it, especially if it's a narrative because I was doing a narrative story so I started from the beginning of the day and then my story ended um, kind of when I started to write it. That was my idea to end it when they went to bed. Nice. Um, So, yeah, talk about like their schedule and like their regular day. Like, can you describe that? Like just like a regular day um, walking, um, trying to get to the border. Um, Yeah. So the little stretch had changed as they went across all of Mexico. But um, when I was with them, like I said, we walked for six hours and they caught on a, they got a truck that drove them for another two hours and then they got off. And then they, at the very end, they got another truck, pickup truck that took them for maybe another, I don't know, two miles down the road, not far a mile. Then they got out and then we walked another half hour and then they um, pitched their tent in the middle of a plaza and uh, then they went down to um, this truck that was parked along there. The Mexican government had brought in a truck with, um, it's called a pipa, and they have like um, spigots with water. It's a water truck, basically a water tank. So they went and bathed at the water truck. And I I just took notes about all that. And, um, and then, um, yeah, so then I just describe all that. And then when my story ran, I had to add other context, of course. So I added the context of... At the time, Trump was saying there were criminals and terrorists and how they were going to invade the U.S. So my story was in the context of actually what you're more likely to find is a family like the one I followed, which mm-hmm. was just a young couple with three kids and had the opportunity to try to get to the U.S. Yeah. So a lot of people are always like, at least like people um, on the other side who think like they should go back and solve their own problems in their country. Um, why are they coming over here? Um what are their reasons for come like wanting to leave their country and come this way? Like why as for this specific family, like why did they want to leave where they were and take all the um make all the trouble to make it over here by foot? Um there's it's kind of I I felt like this family represented a lot of the people in the caravan. They uh basically were escaping poverty and violence. And while they weren't maybe directly threatened with violence, their neighbor who lived three doors down was um, shot by a stray bullet. Someone was, it was a gang member that was shooting, trying to actually shoot someone else and the bullet went in her home and she was asleep with her son and it and ended up striking her, but she, she, she survived. But, um, and then um, they, they made maybe, you know, $50 a week. It was a family of four and the kids 
the oldest daughter uh, only went to third grade and she dropped out to be able to help the mom and take care of the younger siblings. And then also in Honduras, they have to pay, uh, apparently you have to pay some kind of tuition, even at a public school. And so they couldn't afford it. So their kids just didn't go to school. So the younger boys have never been to school at all. The one boy's 11. He doesn't know how to read. He doesn't know how to write. He's never attended one day of school. And, um, the dad has a fifth grade education. The mom has no, same thing, never been to school and she doesn't read or write. And so, um, but yeah, that's mostly in in a lot of Central America, but especially Honduras. Uh, the government uh, it has problems with corruption and there's a lot of drug violence, a lot of gang violence. And then it's uh, very, very poor and uneven. You have very rich and very poor there. So that's the main reasons why people are leaving. Yeah. Um, now that you've seen these people and know their stories and have seen all the struggles and uh, trouble they've had to go through and like, how does this make you feel like seeing them in person, being there, actually like watching them and um, like seeing them face to face and meeting them like at a per- more personal level than us just seeing it on the news? Like, how does that make you feel? Um, yeah, I think it makes you connect and that's what I hope my story that focused on one person did the same. Like the little girl, the oldest girl reminded me kind of of you. She was like a typical teenager. She kicked off her Crocs at one point and did not want to walk. She was walking barefoot down the highway and she said, I don't like anything about this trip. And I said, well, uh, what do you miss about Honduras? And she said, everything. It reminded me of something that you would say when you had it. So I think by showing those tiny little details and like the youngest boy, the mom, um, the night before they left Honduras, they decided within a period of eight hours to leave everything behind and jump on the caravan and leave Honduras. So the little boy was still uh, using a bottle and they had to just take the bottle away from him because they couldn't take a bottle and formula. They couldn't carry that with them. So yeah. They, so those little details I included in my story because I think every mom relates to when you say you wean your baby off a bottle or everybody relates to a teenager kicking off her shoes and saying yeah. she doesn't want to go. She hates this trip. Yeah. You kind of wanted to like... I, I don't know if this is the right word, but like hum, make them more human because everyone kind of, at least I feel like a lot of people see them as just criminals or just people trying to get into our country. Is that kind of your goal? Trying to make them more like relatable and more human and less like criminals and yeah, dangerous th- people? Yeah, I think there's something universal about all of, all of us share something universal and that's why yeah. we can all connect. And so I didn't want to actually show them as the poor migrants because I think that also removes you from them and you think, oh, well, they're poor migrants. They're different from me. I wanted to show as many similarities as possible. And um, so through those small details, I think you can show that, yeah, they may make only $50 a week, but they go through the same kind of things that any parent goes through. They worry about their kids. They're trying to push a stroller down the street and the wheels wobbling and breaking. And they're trying to make sure there's toys for their kids while they're trying to make this trek across Mexico. So while they're facing something that we can't relate to, there's a lot of things that are little details that you do relate to. And that mm-hmm. puts you in their shoes, I think. Yeah. Um, why do you think people don't want them, uh, or people don't want to let them into the U.S.? I think there's a lot of fear, a lot of, uh, and some of that fear comes from not being able to even, uh, communicate because of language barriers. So I feel like 
I have been with a caravan and I've talked to them directly. So I'm not afraid of the caravan because I lived with them. I traveled with them. I can speak to them and I can have a sense of, you know, obviously there's some people in the caravan that, yeah, I wouldn't want to hang out with and that are dodgy. But I would say the grand majority are just regular folks. And if you can talk to them, you would see that. But if you can't talk to them, then people seem scary and they seem unknown and they seem foreign. Yeah. But I think it really comes down to language and not having any kind of contact with them. I think like the Homeland Security Secretary, when she came, she talked about how they were criminals and how they're gang members. But um, but she's never gone over there. And yeah. you think when she was speaking, she was speaking on the beach at the border in San Diego. And I thought, well, well, why don't you go over there? It's five minutes away. Just go across the border and go over to the the shelter where they're all staying and see for yourself. Yeah. Do you think these people are dangerous or a threat? Um, like you said, there's some that are. I mean, you'd be naive to think that all of them are, you know, all 5,000 migrants are completely safe. But um, I still maintain that most of them... I get the sense are just people that want to come up here to work and their families and they're a lot of them are first time people because this group when they heard about the caravan in their country it was a free ticket whereas these are people that were too poor to pay for a smuggler so they weren't your typical migrants they couldn't afford a smuggler a lot of them didn't have much they I feel like they have a lower level of education than the typical migrant and so um I think um, they tend to be more naive. I've asked them, and, you know, I'm only talking to a small group, but uh, the people I talked to, dozens and dozens, said they have never been to the U.S. This is their first time. They seem shocked to see the border and what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, the majority, like I said, are not. uh, Maybe they've, you know, they might have a criminal past as far as, like, who knows, something like drunk driving or who knows I don't know what they would have but I don't feel like it was a dangerous group if it was a dangerous group I couldn't walk around as a woman with my purse at all hours I walked around till midnight because I was interviewing people alone and nothing I never felt in danger Mm -hmm. um as a reporter what is something that you want the world to know about this group or these people um I think what I would hope is maybe if people read some of the stories, they would feel, um, you know, kindness, I guess. It really struck me about how when they traveled through Chiapas and Oaxaca, how kind people were that they came out and wanted to help them. And I think that's something that's really lacking these days. So I guess more than anything, I would like people to have an understanding and then feel kindness toward these people. Mm-hmm. How do you want to help these people or this group or... How would you help them if you could? Um, I guess if I was in power and had <laughs> um, control of everything, um, like through my reporting, I just want to spread understanding and truth and try to have people have the best information possible so the best decisions are made. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that um, really the solution is, you know, immigration is a symptom of something that's gone wrong but what's gone wrong stems from these countries that uh, the U.S. has used to some degree for their own benefits and then the countries themselves have used its own people to for its own benefit for the elite few and so now this is festered and you're dealing with completely broken systems and collapsed governments and countries that are overrun by criminals 
And that is the problem. And until we be, deal with that, then there will constantly be a flow of people coming out of these countries. The solution is to fix the countries and help these countries. These countries helped us during, like like I said, the Contra War. The Honduras was vital during the Contra War with the U.S. putting ma- military bases down there. So now I think that the U.S. should do something for not only it will benefit the U.S., but it also um, because Honduras – did allow the U.S. to come in there and put its bases in there, then they should be able to be mm-hmm. helping for economic development and really just dealing with poverty and um, inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as, like, the family that you followed, have you, like, seen them since or, like, talked to them about, like, since you've been back from that week that you were in office and then you came back? And then since then, have you gotten anything from them or you know, talked to them or anything? Yeah, so I followed them, and then we exchanged numbers, and then they've called me along the way. So they called me when they were in Veracruz, and they called me when they got to Mexico City. And then um, on one of the first days I was covering the caravan in Tijuana, I was sitting in my car, actually about three blocks from where most of the migrants are staying at the sports complex. And I was filing my story in my car, and I heard uh, Jules. And I looked up, and it was the uh, the twelve year old girl Tiffany, and she came running over, and I got out of my car, and they all ran over and gave me a big bear hug. It was very sweet. And anyway, I couldn't believe we found each other. And since then, um, yeah, I've seen them every day reporting that. Now I know where their tent is, so I'll stop by and see how things are going. That's sweet. Yeah, um, yeah, just like having to do these stories and seeing these people, and like. Not only them, but then all these other problems and, like, things that have happened and um, just, like, how do you, like, keep it all in? Like, I know you're not allowed to be biased and give your opinion on these topics, especially publicly. Um, so, like, how does that make you feel, like, having to stay quiet? Um, what do you mean, stay quiet? Like, you're not allowed to, like, say your opinion or state, like, what you feel. Just, like, saying just the facts you can't be like how you feel or what you would do differently yeah i mean yeah sometimes it's depressing you come back and you think it feels overwhelming it seems sad that there's so many people that have such sad stories you know not just Mm -hmm. this family but i talked to a woman who's been running from her husband for five years and she's part of the caravan why why is she running from because he's abusive and at one point he'd beat her so bad she said her eye almost came out of her socket and he had broken her nose and Mm -hmm. her mom was in the hospital with stitches from trying to defend her and and so there's just all kinds of these sad stories. There's another kid I talked to who, he's not a kid, he's 25. He was shot in the leg by a gang member because his girlfriend was cheating on him with a gang member. And so now he's got a bullet in his leg. So there's just, it's overwhelming how many sad stories there are and mm-hmm. um, and how people like don't have an education that that alone is just sad to think that a kid never goes to school like yeah how what, what kind of life is he ever going to have if he doesn't go to school and how far is he going to get and yeah. how is he going to be independent and find happiness but um but i guess um how do i deal with it i don't know sometimes i get sad sometimes i just hope like i said that my stories make a difference and i have to keep going because to do nothing seems wrong yeah. And um I guess 
I don't want to be a politician. <laughs> I don't think I have it in me to be a politician to try to do something. So I just try to provide the information so people can use it to maybe make good policy yeah. decisions. Yeah, it must be hard, like, doing these stories. And um, I know you did the story about, like, the people who uh, died in the shooting for uh, in a bar or something Yeah, like Thousand Oaks. Yeah, like, seeing their stories and, like, getting wrapped up and just, like, almost being there, like, as if you, you know, like, they're at a personal level, just, like, seeing their stories, um, talking to the families, like, it must be, like, hard and, like, you just get so, like, involved and just in this big bubble, like, you know, doing the stories and I don't know, that just seems so hard to do, I don't know. Yeah, like, like when I do victim stories, because often I, they put me on the victim stories, so I have to do the little what we call vignettes of the life of the victims, like with the wildfires or with the bar shooting in Thousand Oaks. I write a lot of those, and I have to reach out to the families. But that, I guess I've come to terms that I think it's important that these people are not forgotten. I feel like we hear about suicide bombs in say Iraq or Afghanistan and they're just suicide bombs. I mean, it's terrible, but we don't know anything more about these people who've died in these suicide bombs. You never Mm -hmm. see little vignettes about these people that's, you know, had a full life. And so to me, that's the one thing that gets me through having these horrible conversations with these families as I feel like I want the world to know who they're who their kid was, who their husband was, and that makes it real. And I think it also makes people horrified. So the hope is, say, with gun violence, that people are horrified. And they, I know we've been horrified over and over, but someday yeah. maybe it will make a difference. Yeah. What's, what's the hardest story you've had to do? Like interviewing someone and like really just like really got to you? Like what's... Do you remember, like, this could be, like, 20 years ago or, like, just, like, in your whole career? I don't know. It would take me a while. There's been so many. And I feel like I do get attached, for, you know, and I get into people's lives for at least a brief while. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's been, like, hurricanes and earthquakes and um, the wildfires recently... uh, the wine country wildfire i spoke to a man who's had lost his wife in that wildfire and it really got to me something about him i just really related to he had been a photographer for the ap actually when he was younger he was retired and uh and his wife um was a musician i don't know something about how he described everything just really sucked me into his life and it just uh i remember just feeling really sad after i got off the phone with him of just you know that he had lost her and just how horrible she had gotten lost and like in her Prius and you know down the road and couldn't see that of the smoke and took a wrong turn and then died in her car but yeah um besides all that um (laughs) (laughs) do you like your job and if so why or why not yeah I do like my job um I like my job because it's always different every single day it's Mm -hmm. always challenging every day um, I meet amazing people all the time from the migrants to the, you know, anybody. And I love how people surprise you and you don't, uh, you know, people defy stereotypes and, uh, they're not at all what you think. So I love that part of my job. It constantly surprises me. I might have a view of someone like, 
I'll go up to a woman who seems very shy and like she's not going to talk and looking at the ground. She's like maybe, uh, you know, I talked to this woman the other day from Guatemala that was Mayan and and then once I spoke, to, once I went up to her and talked to her, it was amazing. She just like unleashed this whole thing. I couldn't get her to stop talking. I love that. You don't expect it. Or mm-hmm. like say someone who looks very hardened and scary. And then you talk to them and actually know they have a very soft side to them. And yeah. So, yeah. yeah. If you could change or like restart your life, would you change your career path? Hmm. I don't think so. I've thought about different things. I thought about being a social worker. I thought about being an epidemiologist. I wanted to wear a hazmat suit and go to Africa mm-hmm. and <laughs> investigate rare diseases. <laughs> but uh, but I like the versatility of my job. I like how I can be with multimillionaires one day in their homes, and then the next day I can be like you know sleeping on the ground, you know, out and yeah. you know I've like I. In Mexico, I covered the elections once from this teeny tiny little town and in the mountains, and I literally slept in a shack on the floor with a, like eleven kids all around me and a donkey poking through the window. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, wow. Well, thank you. I think that's all for now. <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> thank you for interviewing me. It was very fun. You're a good interviewer. Uh, thank you. <laughs> is of Johan, a 10-month-old Honduran baby who showed up to his court hearing in diapers. This past Friday, Johan, who is now 15 months old, was reunited with his family in Honduras. Julie Watson is a reporter with the Associated Press and was at the airport in Honduras to document the reunion. ...is of Johan, a 10-month-old Honduran baby who showed up to his court hearing in diapers. This past Friday, Johan, who is now 15 months old, was reunited with his family in Honduras. 